Eli Brown. Eli Brown. He's the reason for the word addict. Addict. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta we gotta add the piano part to that. Oh yeah. Welcome to episode eleven. Is I it eleven? I, I can't count past ten. I think it's eleven. Uh, of too many jams. Uh, show about all things twenty year old. With help for friends, experts, and our own personal experiences, we hope to shed some light on those topics that seem to leave our age group lost and confused. Today we have our friend. This is one we've been saving in the back burners. I'd say for a long time, Eli Brown. We've been saying, "Oh, we're gonna have mom. We're gonna have mom." But we hang out with him so much. I was like, "We gotta save this for like a time when we're crunched." And yeah. that's right. That's right now. It's been it's been crunch time for you. More specifically, the last uh, few weeks. Yeah, you've been uh, you've been in lockdown mode. I've been zero dark thirty, as I like to call it. Um, <laughs> I, I have CFA level three coming up in three weeks. This is no bullshit. I I started studying two weeks ago. Um. So, yeah, I'm I'm crunching. Like you know what I mean. I I lived a full life up until two weeks ago. <laughs> uh, you know, I had my things going on, and I I, I took some classes on the CFA, but that's just not how I learn. So those classes were a waste of my goddamn time. I just sat there fighting a hangover every Saturday morning, and <laughs> yeah. I, I felt like I was doing good. I wasn't. It's good to go off the grid sometimes. Well, that's that is me. You know, right it'll now. make it'll make your comeback that much bigger. You know, once once you're once you're finally back out socializing again, doing fun things. You know. Well, that's why I'm sitting here. This is like my time. This is my time for today for fun. Is this? So I had I had a glass of whiskey in my hand right now and I'm just enjoying it. But uh, this is a good segue because this time last year I was writing CFA level two. I just come off a year and two months of sobriety from my concussion. And uh, I was I was holding it down and I'd also just started working with my friend Eli. He had he'd kind of transitioned in my business and helped me out when I was having a hard time with it. And uh, we also connected on the sobriety thing. Um, we were friends from before, but he ended up going sober. We'll let him get into that. But it was this time last year, I went zero dark 30 for my CFA level two and it crushed me as it does every year. I got out of that exam. Uh, I went out to the bars that night and I, uh, I got fucking lit <laughs> for the first time in a year in two months. I broke my sobriety and, uh, I had a six-month fallout. <laughs> wait, oh wait, was this, this the, was con like the, the concussion night? This wasn't the... No, this was... I've just done a year and two months sober Yeah. to try to get better from the concussion, and I wasn't better yet, and I just spent all my willpower. Like, I expended it all, not drinking, just being so healthy, active, working out. I spent the last bit of my willpower crushing out a hard CFA. I don't even work in finance, so it takes extra willpower. Yeah, and this... This three-year uh, sentence of you know doing the the CFA exams. Three-year fucking sentence. <laughs> like man. you've you've lost you've lost your steam and you've kind of pivoted completely away from that. Yeah, I'm doing it for other so. reasons now for sure. But it was it was writing the CFA. I spent I spent my last ounces of willpower and I went on a six-month pleasure cruise i spent all the money i had made from the business in grants we traveled i enjoyed my summer i enjoyed liquors and f fine women fine wines and um i just uh i only recently with this podcast got my life back on track yeah <laughs> like back around january and i've been good since but we're approaching another cfa i should be able to handle it better this time but but even more so right now you uh you have completely uh you know, removed yourself from any possible 
uh, distraction yeah, and uh, social situation. So, but uh, yeah, for for Eli's for the episode today, uh, what we're going to talk about is Eli, a good friend of ours. He we we went to uh, we went to school together, university, and Eli uh, Eli had a bit of troubles with uh, his his mental health and. Uh, addiction near the end of his uh, university career which did, did the first zero dark 30 hey, you can't talk yet dude <laughs> this is your intro <laughs> i know i just wanted to get in there i've been sitting here quiet for 10 minutes uh, but uh yeah yeah so 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 eli's gonna give a little back uh, background on his story and, uh, and how it led to all this now? how it led to some extremely positive uh stuff that's happening in his life right now without further ado like let's uh should we get into it? Let's get into it. Jam on, Trav. Jam on, Wayne. <laughs> Let's go. Holy shit, I hate those guys. Somebody help these twenty. It's time to figure it out, Ricky. Don't touch me. Don't fucking touch me. Ladies and gentlemen, Eli Brown. How's it going? Good, good. Thank you, boys, for having me. I've no been, been following you along since the beginning of the Too Many Jams journey, Eli, waiting for the day that I get called. Eli is one of our big supporters. He was in the room when we did that first episode, day one. He was, he was sitting yeah. there. He was actually listening, doing work in the corner, watching us try to bang out our first intro episode. <laughs> I think we recorded an intro episode about three times until yeah. we were happy. A week later, the Hour <laughs> podcast came out. And, well, he, the, at that episode, we're like, we'll have Eli on for sure. And he's like, yeah, let, let's get an episode. Three months later, I get the call. Four, four or five months later, I feel like it's it's June. Five months, and <laughs> not even a good invite. Like a hour before, hey, like, get here, dude. Yeah. <laughs> we need it. <laughs> um, but you've told your story a lot because you're you're doing things now that have required you to public speak, and your story is kind of remarkable. So why don't you give your public speak speaking introduction story? Yeah. So basically, uh, my whole my whole spiel that I always do on stage is grew up playing tennis, traveled around the world playing, uh, started at the age of three um, and continued playing for Team Canada all the way up until I was about 18 years old. Uh, ended up at the University of uh, Michigan Scholarship, uh, top NCAA team, uh, played for them for a year and then decided to, to leave. Uh, while I was there, I was, I was struggling. Uh, a lot of that came from going through sexual abuse at a young age and not knowing how to reach Mental out. Mental health issues? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, the sexual abuse is what caused a lot of the the difficulty that I was having. Um, and at Michigan, a lot of that stuff came to light. Uh, so I struggled for a lot while I was there. I uh, thought that being closer to home would be better for me. So that's part of the reason you transferred to Western. Yeah. Which yeah. was a mistake in hindsight. Which was a mistake. <laughs> which led to maybe even a debatably darker Darker path. path. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> after my first year at Michigan, like, I was like, oh, if I'm you know closer to friends, closer to family, closer to home. Well, your struggles were partying, right? They yeah. Booze and what? Yeah, but at Michigan, I mean, we were getting drug tested almost every other week. Like, But it was booze, was it? Or not? Yeah, but up until about 19 years old. I would barely drink. I, I, I could even like at that time I could probably count like the times I've done drugs on one hand. Like I would, I, I probably smoked weed like twice before I was 19. I think I did blow once and MDMA once mm. and that was it. 
Like tennis, tennis was my life six days a week. And then I left uh, Michigan to be closer to home thinking it was going to be better. Um, and for the first time in my life, I didn't have tennis. I had no drug tests. I, I felt like I had no purpose. So like an idiot, I, uh, you I, went to the number one party and drug school exactly. and joined the top fraternity there. <laughs> yeah. Renowned for its parties and drugs. And before I knew it, <laughs> yeah. And honestly, before I knew it, I was going out six nights a week, doing as many drugs as I possibly could, and drinking as much as I possibly could. Because for a while, these substances were a solution. I was struggling so much inside that by using drugs and alcohol, it made me feel better. And then fast forward a couple months to a year, the drugs and alcohol were becoming the bigger problems in my life. How did so? What then? If it was it was a mental health then that more led you to leave tennis? You just like weren't happy. Like that's a big decision. Quitting your your lifelong professional sport up to that point. Yeah, I mean, I think I was struggling for so long. I mean, ever since I was about fourteen years old, and when I was at Michigan, I just started to lose interest. Like, and that's when I started to feel depressed all the time. Like I would want to miss practice, which I've never wanted to do before. I'd want to sleep in. I would skip class. Like I was doing all of these things that I never did before. And then at the end of that year, I just said, I've had enough. Like it's not fun anymore. So you said, okay, I'm going to leave. Was it a permanent thought or did you think you were always going to come back? Oh no, I, I knew right when I left that I wasn't going to be coming back. And then also the athletic commitment itself. I mean, we were a top five NCAA team like those we've been training since like three years old. Like mm. it's not something that you can take a year off and then get back into it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I knew right when I left that was going to be the end of it. And I mean, at the time and even now, like I'm, I'm, a, I was okay and still am okay with leaving the sport. But I mean, when, when you got to Western, you, you continued playing tennis as well. Yeah, and I mean, I, I played a bit for the the Canadian. It's a different league. It's it was different. it was a six week season. It's like rec you, league. It was it was it was garbage. <laughs> yeah, like you yeah, play comparatively. six. You play six weeks in a year. You practice once a week and have one match a week. Versus at Michigan, we're training four or five hours a day. You got mandatory study hall. You're traveling on weekends, during the summers leading up. Like it's just eight hours a day. Like going to to six weeks out of the year was like picking up a hobby yeah it's it's totally different for sure and i mean so so you came to western fast forward about i think it was like you were there for a year and a half yeah a year and a half roughly. and then Febu and you were yeah, working february a lot. in 2014 i just i left you left school yes yeah, oh, I left I school. This. yeah. you were, eli just shows up one day right and i I guess you had some mutual friends in the fraternity. Yeah, yeah, a couple, a couple good boys in the frat. Yeah, and uh, I was already in it. Rob was already in it, and uh, Eli shows up one day, hot and heavy, transferred. Here, I'm here from Michigan. I like to party. What's up? <laughs> he like he started being a promoter. He started partying. I'd say heavier than the average fraternity guy. Yeah, um, definitely heavier, but also sort of uh, under the radar. Yeah, like low key. Like, like you like wouldn't no know one... if he pulled an all nighter last night or not. Well, because when I get drunk, I don't get obnoxious. Like I'm, I, like, like I'm a pretty quiet guy. And even at the bars, if I would be hammered, I would kind of just chill. Yeah. Because I remember when you you eventually left school, which is in the later half of the third year, I yeah. believe, right? And no one had any idea where you went. 
everyone was like, Where's like, Eli? Where, where is Eli? I went, I went full Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. And, and everyone was kind of shocked when it was, uh, when it finally. Like, we didn't know you had like, an issue. Like people knew yeah, that, that you had an issue, right? Because well, because everyone else has if, the yeah, issue as well. Issue, they just don't. 30% to 50% of the fraternity had strong issues as well with drugs and you see that's the thing is when i was going through the recovery and even like before i left like i was getting help and there were parts where i would be sober and some of me was like like what i'm doing is normal all my friends around me are doing the exact same drugs partying just as much drinking just as much doing as many stupid things as i am and then one day a doctor came to me was like yeah, it's because you're hanging out with a bunch of addicts and alcoholics. <laughs> you know, I, like he broke it down so clearly. To me, he was like, "Yeah, that's what all your friends are doing, but they're also addicts." But you realized that you had a problem and you dealt with it. And do you, do you want to talk a little bit about like your re, like uh, the rehab that you went to and stuff? Because that's a cool story in itself. I mean, the uh, the, the places you went to, you met some cool people and you got some. Yeah, very, Story, very so. interesting people. People I'll never forget. So basically, February 26, 2014 was my last night out. Embarrassed to say, my last drink was a vodka cranberry at JBR's. Oh, God. <laughs> JBR's, RIP. Oh, rest yeah, rest in peace, peace to JBR's, <laughs> the best bar in the world. Um, went home that next morning on the 27th. I'm getting ready to go for treatment. And I was going to a wilderness program. Uh, so basically what it is, is you kind of just get shipped out to the middle of the desert with a bunch of other people who, where was this? Uh, so I flew into Vegas and then we drive two hours into Utah, but it was, I mean, the second I landed in Vegas, I remember like flying and like on the way down, like when the pilot's like, yeah, put your seatbelts on or whatever, we're about to land. I started crying. Cause I was just like, what the fuck? Mm. Like I started having the flashbacks. I was like, shit, like a year ago. I'm like traveling all around the world, playing a professional sport. And now I'm landing in Vegas to go into a rehab program. So it was a pretty emotional time. And it was you that ultimately made that decision, right? Yeah, it was me. Yeah, it was me that made that decision. Um, I mean, I was getting a lot of help before and I just knew it was a matter of time. But that was the time that like I... I was ready to actually get sober and get my life back it was on that track. Vodka cran at JBRs where you look took a good hard fucking look at yourself. <laughs> well, it <laughs> was it, so actually edge. the thing that like I, I sometimes speak about is the people ask me like when was my breaking point? Like what was the thing that got me to go? Um, and a lot of it was I was living in the you remember Mikey and Cam. In the frat house? Or no, with Mikey no, Cam, sorry, in what city was it? No, Varsity Commons. Varsity Commons, yeah. And um, That's an apartment building. Yeah. Just at Western. And I got super fucked up, and I passed out naked on the floor, covered in puke. And fucking Cam took a picture of it and sent it to me the next day. And I, when I saw that picture, I was like, I'm a fucking mess. <laughs> that's like Robbie's Tuesday. Yeah, I know. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was like, I'm a fucking mess. That's every day of the week. Every, sorry, yeah. yeah every I'm day. Like, I was like, I'm a fucking mess. I call my parents, decide I'm going to go to treatment. Uh, you know, lucky, very fortunate that, uh, you know, I had a family that was able to help me through all this. Um, so I land in Vegas. I go down the escalator and these two big security guys are there. They go, you know, whatever, introduce themselves. They go, uh, you know, say goodbye to your mother. Or you're, you're off with us. So say goodbye to my mom, get in the car, give these guys my passport. They drive two hours to some base camp in Utah, get to the base camp there. And, uh, they do the, uh, strip search, the old, uh, cup and cup and cough. 
as they say in the, in the treatment program. No fingies programs. up the bum bum? No fingies. <laughs> um, it is the... And they just make you squat down and cough a couple yeah. times. Oh, okay. It's fucking awful. Um, so I get my gear on and going into the middle of the wilderness. And, I mean, we're completely... Like, talk about Zero Dark Thirty. Mm. We're rubbing sticks together to start fires. We're sleeping under tarps. We're wearing the same underwear for two weeks. And then you get, like, the fresh pair. Like, the, sleeping on the desert floor. This is a real zero dark 30 the only way to communicate with the outside world is by writing letters that get shipped out by you know truck drivers or whatever at the end of the week um and i was there for i think it was something like 47 days but i loved it out there i absolutely loved it and i met some real interesting folks the first two days that i was there you're not allowed to speak to the other group members it's about a time of personal reflection and when I first got welcomed into the group, they do these things called I feel statements. And it would go like, I feel blank, whatever the emotion is. I feel this because, and my hope is that by doing X, Y, and Z, whatever it is, that I'll be able to cope with this emotion or I'll be able to get through it. And my first moment in the group, there was this guy, um, fuck, what was his name? Owen. I won't use his last name just in case he's a too many jams listener. Um, <laughs> Highly unlikely, but okay. And he, he probably w- is. He was there because he was in the KKK and for oh, destructive shit. behavior. Owen. Yeah. My buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's Clan Owen. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. So, so I was there. He was there because he was in the KKK. He got arrested multiple times for destructive behavior, and. Some of some of the people there, some of the participants had knives on them because as you go further along in the program, you get certain privileges. And one if of them you complete challenges. Don't they give you like spoons or like a no? You have or... to carve your own spoon. Oh, okay. You have to do all that stuff. But he, <laughs> this guy had a knife. He was at that certain phase, and he his his my first time being in the group was this guy going, "Hi, I'm Owen. I feel murderous right now, and I feel this way because." And he gave this whole explanation. I pull one of the staff members aside. I thought I was going to die. I mean, I'm a white Jewish guy. Mm. I thought I was going to be fucking butchered oh, in my KK sleep. Hate, they hate Jews. Uh, yeah, they hate the Jews. Oh. So I thought I was going to be fucking butchered. And that was my first time there. But it was all. It was a good experience after that. I got over the fear. And we actually were still friends. And we speak, you know, once a month or something. He's a great, you know, he's, he's made his recovery. And he's a great guy. He's no Contr- longer affiliated with the clan. Not at all. He's a contributing member of, positive contributor member of society. And he's almost five years sober as well now. Nice. Um, so yeah, I met some interesting folks and I was there for about 47 days and on the 40th day there, they hit you with a bomb and they go, there's something called aftercare. I'm like, what is aftercare? They're like, well, after this, you need to learn how to go back into the everyday life. And I was under the impression that after this program, I was going back home and a piece of me still wanted to go back to Western and go back and get fucked up. But I got sent to this other place in Boulder, Colorado, and I lived in an old sorority house. I think it was Alpha Alpha Phi House, and there's about 30 guys living in that house from all walks of the earth, ranging from OCD, mental health, drug addiction, gambling, all under one roof. And I met some absolute characters. Oh, I bet. Yeah, and it was... But take, it was take us through some of the, uh, some of the more memorable... Uh people in that house so there was this one guy named ian the nicest guy i've ever met in my life but he did so much acid he wasn't like he wasn't he he was physically there but not 
100% mentally there, but still the nicest guy. First time I meet this guy, guy's gives me the biggest hug. He's helping me carry my bags upstairs. The nicest guy I've ever met, but also the most interesting. He did this thing where he would go into the sewer systems of Boulder, Colorado, and just try to navigate through them. On acid? No. Oh. He was completely like, sober at like this time. Ni- oh, this like is, Ninja is... Turtles. Yeah, he was completely sober. He would go through manholes, pick up the thing, uh, whatever the cover is called. Did he stink? Eh, like me- medium. <laughs> he didn't stink? I'm, I'm sure he would shower medium stink. I'm sure he would shower. But he would pick up the covers of these, these manholes and navigate through the sewers and just pop up at random parts of the city. And he would, he had this big rope that um, he found in the sewers one day and he would scale the side of our house at night. Hmm. He would just put it out the window, (laughs) tie it to the fire escape and just scale it. And like, it was just stories like that because everyone was there for different reasons and we're all under one roof and everyone's, I mean, you're roommates for months and months. It's like you create such a great bond with these people. Where was the point then when you finally got rid of that urge to be like, I want to go back to get fucked up? So I started, when I was there, I started to go to AA. Oh. That was my, so at the Wilderness Program, they Anal did. Addicts Association <laughs> of Alcohol, America. Alcoholics Anonymous. Anon, an, I, I've been in the program for almost five <laughs> Anal years. Anal Addicts. I can't see, oh, I, I can't oh, see the word. I'm thinking of sorry, sorry. Anal Addicts. <laughs> Anonymous of America. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are fucked in the head. We're um, his friends. He's trying to be like. Anyway, we'll we'll get we'll get through it. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll <laughs> eventually. Um, and that's where I got introduced to AA, and I was in a couple meetings, and every time someone spoke, I could relate to their story. So that's kind of when I started to realize is like, yeah, I'm probably an addict. I'm probably an alcoholic. I'm gonna give this thing a go. And after about a month of being in the program, I was like, you know what? Living sober is not that bad. It's going to be a change. It's going to be different. I don't know how I'm going to do it when I get home and start going out with all my friends again, but I know it's the right decision for me right now. And I just kept plugging away at it and almost five years sober. Congrats, man. Yeah, that's huge. Thank you. I mean, like how hard was that when you came home and- you had to adjust to me going out with friends and everyone and being sober. So when I came home, it wasn't even the drugs and alcohol and being around that stuff that bugged me. Cause I did a pretty good job for like the first couple months that I was back, not being around that stuff. It was more about the anxiety of seeing people like seeing exes, seeing friends that I just went complete zero dark 30 on or like breaking up certain friendships that I knew we're just party relationships. And now that I'm being sober, I'll never want to hang out with these people again. Like a lot of the difficulty was around that stuff, like readjusting to being back home, different circles of friends, some same circles of friends, but telling them that, Hey, on a Friday night, I'm not down to go with you guys. But if you want to hang out with this this week, like maybe let's do something else. So I was just trying to work out those friendships and figure out which ones were going to last and which ones were going to be gone. Freed up a lot of time for your uh, your dating schedule, eh? Yes, it did. Um, <laughs> and the time you spend on Tinder, Let's just say he's replaced Tinder, certain Bumble. addictions with other addictions. <laughs> yeah, but, but, <laughs> not that bad. But not my, that bad. But my first year of recovery, I didn't date once. 
because that was that's part of the program. Yeah, because you were fucking sober, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, but part of the program is for the uh, first year they recommend that you stay completely abstinent. I I see that. Did you do that? Will, yeah, f- uh, one full year. You up. Yeah, exactly. So my first year of sobriety, I didn't go on one date, didn't kiss one girl, completely abstinent for a full year. And then the guy who was helping me through this, my sponsor, he goes, when you make it through that year, buy a plant. If you can keep the plant alive for six months, you can date again. Tight. So that's what I did. Marijuana plant? What kind, <laughs> of, yeah, what kind of plant did, did you, uh, did I you kept get? A, what are those orchids? I got yeah. an orchid. Okay. And I kept that thing alive for six months. And then I started the date. And, and you never stopped since. <laughs> Well, I'm is, not married yet, so, yeah, so of course. Yeah, yeah. So wasn't one of the uh, one of the things you had to do when you came back as well to start uh, something that raised awareness for, yeah, or yeah. like something that was uh, that was positive for like the mental health community and everything? Yeah. So which led to it wasn't so much a requirement. It was just when I was living. Like, in, wasn't that one of the projects that they made you? Well, that, yeah, do, it was right? something that I chose to do because when I was in Boulder, Colorado, I was Canadian living in the U.S. I was there on some tourist visa or whatever it was, I couldn't legally work there. So at the program between the hours of two and six, everyone would have to go and get jobs as part of their recovery. And I wasn't able to do that. So I thought I was going to start this clothing line to raise awareness for mental health. I started it there. And then that's, I mean, that's basically still what I do to this day. I started it in treatment, printed our first shirt there. And uh, we're now in about 1,500 stores across North America. So that's that's basically my life now. Just the t-shirt game. Yeah, I, I remember I remember a little bit of this. When you first resurfaced, everyone didn't know where the fuck you went. And then you show up again, and you're like, oh, I'm clean and sober. And we're all like, oh, cool. You're like, no, like, no one like gave you trouble for it. Um, and you said something about a clothing line, but then you also disappeared again for two more years. Yeah, because I was building my company. I know, but... Like, yeah, you were so off the grid. You were off the grid again. So like, I got a couple messages, but then also with all, with all, yeah, like you were like, but, but with all like due respect, as you said, we were party friendships. I was still at University of Robbie. We were probably the opposite of what you would want to be hanging out with, destructive alcoholics. You know what I mean? Uh, on a, on a party <laughs> not much binge. has changed from you boys. No, so. no, we're 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 good. We're good. Um, but. But yeah, I mean, when I got back and I started the business, I went completely dark again because I knew that starting a business was going to be difficult, that I couldn't do like the whole entrepreneur thing mm-hmm. where it's like you work three hours a day and call yourself an entrepreneur. I was like, I really want to start something. I really want to do something great. I had no idea what I was doing. So my only way to compensate was work twice as hard as everybody else. So I remember this is how So two years later. I'm now involved with my friends. They started Wrist and Rye. And I, I, uh, I joined up with them because I'd got a bad concussion and I had to quit my job and I was looking for something to do. Um, and they brought me on and I was working with them for a bit. And it was at some point during that year, maybe the first six months with the company, I'm looking at starting an apparel line within Wrist and Rye. So I go to a couple t-shirt producers in Toronto. I'm sitting in the waiting room for to meet with someone who's a t-shirt maker and fucking Eli's in the waiting room. And I'm like, Oh, what the fuck? Like, what, is that how you guys linked up again? That's how we, yeah, that's how we linked up. And then I, I shot him a message on on uh, on Facebook being like, because there was a McDonald's down the street. I was like, yo, meet me at the McDonald's. Yeah, because I had a meeting right after his. So he left his meeting with the person. I went in. Yeah. I came out and he's like, I'm up the street at this McDonald's. Let's catch up. 
Yeah, so I went to McDonald's. I, I uh, ten piece McNugget, large fries, iced tea on the side. You'll never forget. I got. A, I don't remember because what's <laughs> just what it's just what I get every <laughs> oh, single okay. time I'm there. Um, <laughs> no, but I I, uh, I asked him what he's up to, and he just said I like this was just when your company was starting to buzz. After two years, this was like you just got into maybe like ten. Yeah, like at that stores. point, like we hit seven stores. Seven stores. We yeah. sold out that same day. And I was like, shit, I really got something here and I have no infrastructure. And I was like, yeah, dude, so do I. I was like, we're selling hundreds of bracelets online. <laughs> it's so next level. And you're like, wow, cool. Like, let's, uh, you, you, you basically like, you're like, I'll, uh, I'll invest. And I was like, oh wait, so you're actually doing well. Okay. I was like, we're, we're not ready for that. <laughs> um, it was a little bit of a boost. Yeah. Oh, you could invest at the time? No, no, no. A boost on your end. I wasn't boosting. I told you the accurates, but I, I definitely wasn't in a place to invest. Like we were doing all the things I told you. Um, but then, uh, then what happened? We kind of went our separate ways again. We, 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 we chatted periodically and it was when I'd gone sober in a summer because my concussion wasn't getting better. A year later after my concussion, it wasn't getting better. So I, I exhausted all options. I said, you know what? Clean and sober. I need to find my baseline to know if these things are getting better or worse. I can't, can't get fucked up um, with my treatments. And then uh, I was also subsequently going through some troubles with my partner at the time. And we just were butting heads. And I was going to you for advice. And you, we were also sober. So we just had this like, oh, I'm we sober. We had this bond. You're sober in business. <laughs> Let's work together. And then uh, we, we ended up renegotiating the company to bring you on as a uh, partner. And uh, I ended up working with you for the year after through sobriety, through um, bringing my business into stores. And I get it, man. I, I think I actually probably get sobriety more than the majority of your non-sober friends. Yeah, I mean, like for me, I do it because... If I have one drink, I can't just have one drink. Or if I, you know, if yeah. I drink, I have to do drugs. You're zero or ten. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where I have no self control, and so for me, I get it. But like that whole sober business person, it helps. Dude, that was that was a. I I've never done. I think we got. 35 grand of grant funding in that year I was sober because um, it's all the micro things so it's like seven stores we hired some employees we were fucking buzzing yeah because it's all the small things you know it's like I'm uh, you know being sober Friday night I go out maybe and I go out to like 11 30 12 drink a couple waters go home wake up at six good to go to the day but other people are going out getting fucked up going to bed at three waking up at two so on the weekends I'm getting an extra 15 20 hours of work on people that same decision every single week adds up at the end of the year well i had my concussion issues so i wasn't i i had to take like naps and like do my stretches and go see therapists and shit like yeah. for my head or like physiotherapists and stuff but i was still like way more productive than than me when i was partying and oh, totally and, and in fact you know what i found eli is people are like oh i feel so bad for you for being sober like all this stuff like partying is more fun no doubt like not, neither of us can deny that getting fucked up is fun. No doubt about it. But when you, when I had a reason to not get fucked up, it was very easy to give up. When I had something in my head, like, you know what, this is for me. It was very easy to give up for the entire year. And for you, it's the same way. You're like, this is me on alcohol and drugs. I'm a homeless person. 
this is me off alcohol and drugs. I'm a successful businessman. It's very easy to give up at that point. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, it was definitely difficult. Just like learning how to be sober, how to go out, how First to hang three, out with three, friends. Five months. Woo! It was rough. I, like I was going to a bar. I would walk in, take 10 steps, see an X bolt out the door bolt <laughs> you had some pretty crazy axes like i would fucking run and i mean it was they were throwing punches at you. yeah it was <laughs> it was difficult but i mean yeah i mean going out when i was drinking and doing drugs definitely some great nights in there but also some of my worst nights possible and now like when i go out i still have a great time it's just it's a different type of night very different you know like for example it's like when I was getting fucked up, I could speak to someone for an hour, wake up the next day and not even tell you their fucking name. Like I would, I would have no idea. Face no, blindness. Yeah. Face, face blindness. <laughs> it's a real thing. Uh, According to Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt what, has it. Yeah, and Travis McKenna. Pro, uh, what's it called? Propagation. Propagation. And Travis McKenna. Add me in there. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, so when I was getting fucked up, I'd have these long conversations with people. No idea the next day who they are, what, you know, what do we even spoke about? Now, when I go out, it's a different level of fun. Like I could actually have a normal conversation with someone. Dude, I was super analytical of it because in my mind, because I knew it wasn't a permanent thing, I was observing. I was like, what is this like? I was like running experiments. My opinion was you can have just as much fun, if not more fun in certain scenarios. Totally. Out with friends, um, social groups of, of people you're comfortable with, concerts even, like all this type of stuff. Wheeling dates, I, was, I had better dates. I had better relationships with people. The only time where I felt... Uh, bad was in scenarios where I didn't know many people so I had to like meet new people in a loud ass club and it required you to just be fucked up or not be successful uh, like scenarios where everyone is fucked up out of their tree because talking with drunk people not fun not fun it's awful and you, realize, and you also realize people talk real close yeah, you, you, when you, you know you're an idiot you look like when you're fucked oh, up man, holy you shit guys are, everyone's <laughs> retarded like literally like I'd hang around with you guys and I'd be like my friends are fucking apes. No, but but also but remember I was I was like kind of dealing 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 with like health issues at the same time. Quasi and, sober. And I was I was quasi sober for many for a lot of nights that we went out. I uh, I would have like one casual or not drink at all. Like even uh, the Halloween party we went to. Yeah. Stuff we were fully fully sober that one night. I had a um, blast. Or going out to the bars and stuff. I I learned a lot too about going out sober as well and it yeah you could you can still have a lot of fun it's just uh yeah you realize when people get drunk they lose all respect for personal space you got people patting your back giving you hugs that you haven't seen in four years yeah sweaty gross spitting it's disgusting you realize like like for me like sometimes when i go out like people ask me it's like do you find it difficult to be around people doing drugs and alcohol i'm not really around it that much but when i am people are definitely sending it and I'm like, no, because when I see what they're like, it is a constant reminder never to drink again. It's the, it's the well, small scenes. Yeah. Like if, if we're just hanging around, you know, on a patio somewhere, those are the times where I'm... You want a beer. Yeah. It's yeah, not even that yeah. I want yeah. a beer. It's more of like, a, oh, wouldn't it be nice mm. if I could have a beer with my buddies and just one beer and go home versus like those are the situations I find drastically harder than going out to a you know, like club liar liar good plug for Sam Resnick check it out yeah great place uh, great place not if you're sober uh, not if you're sober but if you need a good night in Toronto go to liar liar yeah it was un- it was a unique experience um and we can we can you know we can have a whole episode on sobriety um but let's let's kind of save it uh let's let's move forward so 
you started a clothing company about mental health. Take it from, in a brief synopsis, from that idea in Boulder, Colorado, to where you're at now, major milestones along the way. Kind of, kind of what's happened. So the first... And from the perspective that someone wants to do something similar, what is what does that kind of trajectory look look like? How much work? Yeah, so I mean, our, I feel like our trajectory is kind of odd because we hit it right on the mark in terms of timing. Like if I look back three, four years ago, that was right when mental health awareness started to become very, very prevalent. Chic. Yeah, like it was it was really becoming talked about. So I think that. It was great timing, but basically, you know, we started uh, with a couple t-shirts that we were sourcing on American apparel blanks and we were just printing our designs on it, Uh, but we were using these common stock items and it was awful. We had zero success with it. I mean, I couldn't give this stuff away. It was so bad. Um, So I started to go into stores because I really wanted to do this. And I went into almost every store in Yorkdale, Eden Center, like all the big malls in Toronto, going into you know all the big brand stores um, and all the department stores, speaking to staff, being like, "Tell me what's your best seller? Why is your best? Why is it your best seller? What's your best selling color?" And all of that stuff. Talking to customers, why are you buying this item versus this item? And I started to kind of gather together a bit of information of what my, you know, what the company could look like. Um, so I decided, okay, I know what colors I want. I know what styles I want. I know what graphics I want. I got to get this thing going. And for me to get it going, it was about, I think it was like anywhere between 17,000 or 22,000 or somewhere in between there. Obviously I didn't have a penny to rub together. So I got three jobs. I started coaching tennis. Um, I worked as a pizza boy at Pizzeria Libretto, best pizza in Toronto. And, uh, also working for Sue Sir Lee and then, you know, occasionally doing errands for my, my mom and her friends. Um, saved up enough money for the first production run and I went for it and uh, we launched in seven stores in Toronto and they all sold out within 24 hours uh, the message being on the shirts the me- yeah the message being relation. on the shirts it's all done by people who've been impacted by mental health we listen to their stories and that's how we come up with our designs so like for example we have a design that says rather be in bed It was done by a girl who was describing her depression and how she always liked to isolate and stay in bed all day when she was feeling depressed. So we kind of turned that into a design and still to date, probably one of our best sellers. And even if you're not depressed, everyone wants to fucking stay. Yeah, I was just about to say, I feel like that's just like a joke on our whole age group, you know, a a memeable type (laughs) joke. It's hardest thing to get out of. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for us, what, what I've always been cautious about is when I first came out with the line, we had a shirt that said, shine the light on mental health. It was way too direct. People didn't feel comfortable wearing it. Did you have so, the name of your company at this point? At the name, at the time, it was called Heads and Thumbs Up. That's shit. It was awful. <laughs> it was awful. Everything. It was <laughs> Thank awful. Thank God it's shine the light on now. I yeah. know. Well, now, now it's a beautiful name. Shine the light on. And my dad thought of it. Um, dad thought of the name? Yeah, my dad thought of the name. Because he was like, Eli, you know, you're going to shine a light on mental health right now, but who knows, in five years from now, you may want to shine a light on something else. So it was good. My dad, I give, I give him a <laughs> lot of a credit. He's a businessman. He's a businessman. So thank God we got all the trademarks and copyrights for that. So we are good to go. Oh. Yeah, but basically, you know, when I, I learned from that first collection <laughs> was that people want to support mental health, but they don't want to be too obvious with it because there's still the stigma around it. So I said, okay, I'm going to come up with these designs that have a mental health meeting, but to maybe other people, the rather be in bed design just maybe they got, you know, stayed out too late and they just want to stay in bed all day Sunday. So that's how we kind of came out with our second collection. And then it just, it took off. 
We're now in 1,500 stores across North America. And it's just a ton of hard work. Because I'm not a super bright person. I just work very hard. Well, it's it's not necessarily brightness, like maybe academically, but I, so let me break up zero to 1500 stores. What does this take? Okay. At every step of the way, the hustle is the same. So when I first talked to him, he was going store to store talking to people. If you want to start a business and you don't know what to do, you're like, oh, what are my first steps? And you're sitting at home and you're Googling you it. You got to go out and talk to people. Go the fuck it. Talk to your customer. Talk to people who sell to those customers. Talk to other businesses. Literally call other people doing the same shit. Yeah, so that's what I was doing. I was calling other brands saying, hey, I'm starting this out. It's all for mental health. Do you mind spending 10 minutes? Could you just tell me about anything you can give me? Um, you know, in terms of advice or distribution, or whatever it is, production. And I was surprised how how open and friendly people were to that. And then, you know, when we came out with our, you know, the sample set, I packed it up in a cardboard box. I went on to blog TO and I typed clothing stores in Toronto. It broke it down into about 10 areas of the city, Yorkville, Lawrence Park, you know, the Young and Eglinton area, all of that stuff. And I would pack up my box at the beginning of every single day at 8 a.m. And I would go to the streets and I would walk door to door to door with a box of samples talking to store owners. I must have got over 300 no's in my first two weeks. It was brutal. Going door to door all day. Sometimes I wouldn't even be able to make it into the store. I would open up the door. They would see a kid with a box. The store would be like, nope, turn away. Like I didn't even go, but it was a great experience because I learned what people like, what they didn't like, why they did or why they didn't. I learned how to, you know, redefine my sales pitch. And at the end of two weeks, we got those seven stores. And ever since then, it has been the exact same grind. We're still going door to door. We just now have employees doing it and we have a whole team and infrastructure behind it. And just to take a break there, on the Blake Fly episode, he talked about a strategy to uh, approach stores. And a guy like me... What did he say again? Well, he, uh, maybe he didn't. Maybe that was actually my one-on-one consultations with him, actually. Because I did, I don't I did personal that. business consultations with yeah. Blake. Um, so for, so for when I started working with Eli, he was like, Trav, go store to store, grind it out like me. And look, I'm, I'm not in 1500 stores right now. I'm in 15, you know what I mean? So that strategy didn't work for me. And it was only, I, and I would really beat myself up for it because I just didn't want to do it. I just don't want to do that. People generally have a tough time doing that stuff because it can be embarrassing. Yeah. Going into a store and getting rejection after rejection. It's That's like, definitely it's a, cold, cold. Uh, a comfort zone pusher. It's a comfort zone pusher. But what Blake told me that made me feel better about it, he's like, not everyone has to be like Eli. You have to put in the same aggregate work as you. Like, as you said, you're saying I'm not that smart. What you meant is you weren't using your brain. You were just banging your head against the wall and taking what you could from that. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you weren't sitting at some tower trying to orchestrate this. No, I'm going door to door knowing that if I mm-hmm. go see... A hundred stores, one or two will say yes. Right. So it's not that it's not nothing to do about your intelligence. In fact, some would say that's a more intelligent move if you're willing to do it. What Blake is saying is he his his way of approaching people was different. So he found his own way to do the same aggregate amount of work as you, let's say. So maybe I find a way to connect with stores better, maybe through friends of friends or through an interesting way to get through the door. And maybe in order to get that one to ten stores. I have a way where I only have to approach a hundred or whatever it is. You have to break down your numbers in order to do the same aggregate amount of work as you. So when you're starting a business, that's what it takes. Whether you're doing it, whether you find someone to do it, whether whatever it is, whatever you orchestrate that works for you, that amount of work has to be done one way or another. So once he got to a certain amount of stores and things were doing well, what happened? Are people giving you feedback? Things well, then the, well, then the tables turn. I mean, after... 
probably about 50 accounts, people start seeing it on social media. They start seeing it in the windows of malls and stuff like that, that then we start getting calls and emails from stores being like, Ooh. hey, I want to carry your product. And then you get calls from tables si- turn, the tables turns. <laughs> and then you get invited to trade shows. Then you get sales agents across the country being like, let me represent your line. And all of a sudden I have four Eli's going door to door in Vancouver, four, in Calgary yeah. and all this. And then that's how it really starts to grow. So, but I do want to put caveats in here. Like that is a trajectory of a retail company through and through. There's other ways to do it. Maybe, uh, maybe you're a celebrity or you have celebrity connections that can get the word out a different manner and go social media and, and that down or through stores. But what you got to do is you got to look at your advantages. Eli's advantage was he didn't give a fuck. He'd ask anyone any question. He'd go to any store. You had family connections with people in retail on the wholesale and production side. He found his advantages and you extracted them. If your advantages are knowing celebrities or design or whatever, like you have to play that. Yeah, do what, do what you're good at. Uh, you're good some, at. One of my mentors told me, spend 80% of your time doing the things you're good at and hire someone to do the other 20%. Right. So like as... as my trajectory in retail is going to be completely different than yours. It's going to be completely different. Uh, and the only reason why I'm not as successful as, as you is I have not found a way to do the same aggregate amount of work. Yeah, I mean, every every business, every product, every service has a different path. And the people behind it choose that path. And some of them are correct, some of them are not. Right. I think a lot of it does come down to hard work. I think all of us have seen a lot of our friends start businesses, whether they've been successful or not. And I think so much of it comes down to whether or not they're able to put in the hours that it takes. Well, it's survival. Yeah, because I mean, the first two years. The first two years it can be brutal. You didn't. You didn't have a. You were. You had nothing in that first year. You're getting nose on nose on. You couldn't give your clothes away. Exactly. I mean, and it's takes persistence. Um, takes a lot of time, and just really a lot of hard work because eventually. If you keep plugging away at it and not changing courses, not being like this month I'm doing this business, that month I'm doing this, next year I'll be doing this. If you really stick with something, you could make almost any bad idea good. It's true. It is the like, truth. Like you look at how many businesses and how many services there are in the world. You're like, how is this there? Like, how is this successful? Maybe not a bad idea. It, you, you still have to be someone who's flexible enough to go with the punches. If you try to drive a hammer through wall after wall after wall, you're going to run out of money. You're going to run out of friends. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah it, it can be tough out there. If you take a bad idea and you're the type of person that maybe you or I am or Robbie is that can respond, you can fishtail that idea through the same pathway and figure out a route that's going to make that successful. If you're responding to customers, hundred percent, you, have to, you flows, have to be able to adapt, but also, alive. but also stick with your vision. Right. Like from the very beginning, I'm like, I'm doing shine the light on mental health. That's what I want to do. I was getting tons of people giving me feedback. Oh, you should do this. You should do this. Why not this? And I'm like, no, that's not, yeah. that's not my path. That's not my vision. And I stuck with my vision and I'm happy I did because if I didn't, I probably would be, you know, taking the advice of licensing the name of Shine the Light on to different charities. Yeah. That's not what I want to do. And that's the beauty of running your own company, right? You don't have to take advice from no one. You uh, you make all the calls. Yeah, the but I mean, day. it's important to listen to other people's feedbacks because, I mean, that's, that's how, that's, yeah, that's that's how you go. Yeah. But there's a really fine line between... Because people have li- shit feedback. <laughs> yes, but they also have great <laughs> feedback. Yeah. yeah. There's a very fine line between sticking to your vision... And listening to people's feedback. Like I love the the Steve Jobs movie and his book because he... Who's that, sorry? Steve Jobs. Never heard. You know the guy Apple? 
Oh, what's that? <laughs> yeah, cool company. You should check it out. Um, cool. I'll look it up. He just had, he had a vision for Apple. And anyone who was against his vision or didn't agree with it or spoke out against it, he'd just tell them to fuck off. He was so confident in his business model and what he, and his vision that no matter what it was, he was going to stick to it. But I'm sure on the other side, there's probably a million people out there who did that and it failed. Well, you have to be a certain type of person. You have to be smart enough. Like, as you said, oh, I'm not that smart. Yeah, it's a different type of smarts. You really have to understand where the money and the drive and the ebbs and the flows of what's going to make your idea. It's like water trying to find the path of least resistance. If you keep throwing up dams, maybe you won't make it. You'll run out of money before it finds its path. If you're building fucking streams and digging out tunnels, like, yeah, you're going to get there faster. It's survival. Yeah. The second your idea runs out of money, that's when the business is dead. If you can keep it alive, solvent, you will find that breakthrough. Even if you're banging your head against the wall, if your business is making enough money, so you're not running out of money, you will eventually, eventually fucking get there, whether you're 50 or 80. Like, you'll get there. Oh, 100%. I mean, and we're, we're really now seeing that now. I mean, obviously, the business has been growing quite a bit for the past year and a half. But over the past couple of months, we've now really been able to take the money we've made and now invest in real estate. You know, take the money and now we're building affordable housing in the city of Toronto. So it's like we are still 100% a clothing company. That's what we do. That's you know what we love to do. But our goal is to end the stigma around mental health and help those suffering. So we're finding different ways, you know, using Shine the Light on the brand that we've built, um, the distribution that we have to now continue doing that, but also find those other streams that we can make a difference. And with the public speaking and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Shine the Light On has led to multiple other opportunities for you as well outside of just running a, a successful clothing brand. Uh, I mean, a few a few months back, Trav and I, uh, well, Eli invited us, um, Travis and I, to this speaking event that he was at with some with some big names uh, there downtown you Toronto. At the, the Gary V one? Uh, the Gary V one, yes. Yeah, Eli was speaking alongside Gary V at this conference, which was uh, which was awesome to go check out. Um, plus, I mean, you've like fashion awards. Uh, I mean, people in the like fashion world have also taken notice for your designs and what you're doing uh, with your clothing and everything. So there's perks to being a, a, a businessman and what you're doing right now with mental health and the cl- cool clothing celebrities. Fun events. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it's been interesting yeah. though because, I mean, people think we are a fashion company, but we're really not. We're really just telling a story. Um, and we're using clothing as a way to get that message across. Yeah, whether it was a, it could be a, a it could media be a coffee, company, it could a be a car co- company, a coffee company. It could be a coffee mug that and we even did some for Indigo. We, you know, we print our designs on the the side of a mug, and all it is is we're sharing the story of people who've been impacted by mental health. But people need that physical product that they could touch yeah. and feel. And you need, you need yeah. the money to, to fund exactly. It. Yeah. You need the money to fund it, but. I mean, it's given me so many opportunities. I mean, speaking on We Day, going on a three-month speaking tour starting in September, going to schools across Canada, you know, the Canadian Arts and Fashion Awards, meeting different celebrities and influencers. I never knew it would grow to this level. You know what? And now I'm here on too many gyms. Yeah, wow. Dude, you've actually fucking hit it. This is the pinnacle, I think. Yeah, our biggest star guest yet. Well, the, the thing about this is like, I think what we're talking about 
when we bring people like Eli on to tell their story, the, the moral is always, this is a path. Like, this is like, look at some of the stuff he's done and draw parallels to because your path is going to be completely different. Even if you're a serial entrepreneur, we're not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I think you're just trying to bank on a different idea. You're hoping that if you start enough ideas, that one of those is going to be that one in a million that, or but, one in a hundred thousand. Which is tough that, to do because... I mean, but it's a way. It's it, a way to it, do it, it. It is a way to do it. I mean, and that's what I've learned about even about my life, my life path so far, is everybody has a different path. You know, there's there's no one way to to achieve success in life and mm. business and family life, whatever it is. Everyone has a different way. We all just need to to find our path and find our goal. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of been like the most eye opening experience to me. It's, I mean, I failed out of university three times, went to rehab. I mean, like, I wouldn't say that these are all things that would be conducive of a successful life path, but for me, it worked. Mm. So you and, wouldn't recommend necessarily people getting fucked up. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and you know what? And that, and that works to your story too. I mean, there's a lot of people that, that I can imagine being shamed of having that type of background and, uh, you turned into an advantage. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, and you've, you've used it as a strength for, for sure. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's we all have our different ways of getting through things. I mean, there's some people who are straight A students, they get great jobs and maybe they go through a traumatic event and they're old, you know, when they're older and then that's how they figure out their life path. Some people it happens earlier, like for myself at, at 14, um, you know, it's like we now live in a world where there's not one way to achieve success. Um, you know, like there's certain people who, do well and graduate and other people who drop out and end up doing great things yeah like we're not i don't think we're ever trying on the show to prescribe a right way um we're just trying to show the many different ways because I, when i was in the entrepreneurial uh incubators and stuff i met entrepreneurs that were like man i was doing business after business after business and then i finally found one that meshed with me so well that i knew yeah and and, and the money started coming in right away which is rare for any business, but maybe if you run enough, like there's a million different paths and everyone's got those, every entrepreneur has that moment where they get a perspective that opens up their future, their revenue, their, their lifestyle. Yeah. But even, I mean, not even just talking about entrepreneurship, but just in just general, it's like everyone's going to find a different way. Everyone's going to take a different path and there's nothing wrong with being different or nothing wrong with being unique. I mean, one thing I always talk about in my speeches is that our greatest challenges in life can become our greatest successes that we learn the most when we go through pain rather than success. And you know, that so many times I would look back at my life and I'd say, can't believe this happened to me. My life's so unfair. You know, why did this happen? All of that BS. And it's like taking those experiences and learning from them rather than looking back at my past in shame, just realizing that's part of my story. And that's part of what's made me who I am yeah I, I think that's a great way to uh, to finish off the episode and uh, try to wrap things up is there anything else that you want to uh, you want to add here anything that we missed anything we touched on or what's what's kind of like the future for uh, you know shine the light on or what's happening with you next yeah and I think you know we just opened up our, our first freestanding retail store yeah, which is uh, awesome. Which is which Congrats I'm really pumped about. I mean, it's our first taste in retail. Normally, we'd be doing wholesale and and just you know doing e-com and stuff. But uh, I mean, for for me now, it's just kind of taking a different role within the company and just 
looking at some of the bigger picture stuff and getting out of the factories and just public. You love those factories. I love because because that's like the <laughs> ground loves floor. Loves going to the factories. I'm there like four times a day, but I mean that's you got to do that at the hey, beginning. Hey, what's going on? Just at the fucking factory, dude. What's up <laughs> with you? Every day. Oh, I'm just in traffic on the way or to or from factory. Because you got you got you got to know the business better than anybody else working there. Um, but I mean now for me it's just a ton of public speaking. I'm um, doing the affordable housing and just you know keep plugging away at the vision of shine the light on, but. I mean, the last message I love to finish on is because I know there'd be a lot of listeners with too many jams who are unsure about what they want to do in life and they're they're worried and they're concerned about not having a life path and just kind of giving the advice that you'll figure it out one day. Just keep chugging away. Do. Yeah, and do. Just learn. learn that's it. That's it. Learn what you love and learn what you hate to do and don't do it. Yeah, but, you learn more by figuring what you hate. Yeah, but just Absolutely. keep chugging away and don't be ashamed of failing or not succeeding in things and knowing that one day your persistence will lead to your path and hopefully you guys will bring me back for season two uh yeah hundo if we do a season two (laughs) (laughs) we might be uh we might be world famous musicians by then no but uh thanks so much for coming on and um I guess, you know, if we are in another pinch situation, you know, maybe we could do a sobriety episode or something. You know what I mean? Thanks. I'd be honored. <laughs> <laughs> no, but honestly, what, you, what you've done the last little while when we've been working together, I saw it seven stores and I've seen 1500 the whole time and you haven't changed a fucking bit. So congrats on that. Keep doing you. Thank you, boys. All right. Cheers. And I'm not fucking leaving.